0: So the ancient Chinese proverb says, may we be cursed to live in interesting times. And that's been thrown around an awful lot of late. But we're not talking about Brexit or the Mueller report. We're talking about the really important things in life. We're talking about motorcycle racing. Thanks for joining us on the Paddock Pass podcast. And today we'll try and figure out where a swing arm ends and an aerodynamic appendage begins. I'm Steve English and David Emmett will be joining us as well. And uh, David, just like ancient Chinese proverbs, there's a lot more to this than meets the eye.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's the, I mean, uh, so w- once the spec electronics were introduced, then, and Gigi Delinia figured out that he could get around the lack of anti-wheelie in the electronics Uh, by uh, sticking on uh, all sorts of wings and appendages, then we were basically doomed to go down this road forever. And as soon as you start with aerodynamics and start to control aerodynamics, as I'm sure you know from your uh, interest in F1, Steve, um, it just turns into a giant hellhole. And that's where we appear to find ourselves.
0: Yeah, it definitely turns into a massive arms race just to be able to see who can spend the most money and uh, certainly right now it does look like Ducati's the one spending the money and uh, what we're going to do in this show is we're going to talk about basically how Ducati has said that they've been able to prove that their spoiler on the swing arm was there just to cool the tyres and uh, we'll also look ahead to this weekend's Argentine Grand Prix. So, Dave, that was your quick thoughts just on the decision of the MotoGP Court of Appeal that ruled in favour of Ducati to allow the results of the Qatar Grand Prix to stand. I was quite happy because I had uh, put some money on De Vizioso to win and now I don't have to give it back to the bookies. But uh, just whenever we look at the decision that has been made, can you just talk us through the process that goes into creating an appeal and then what we saw actually happen in Geneva with the MotoGP Court of Appeal. Uh,
1: Right, well, the MotoGP rulebook basically says that um, uh, teams have half an hour after each race to uh, lodge a protest, uh, either against the results or against any of the the decisions during the race. Um, uh, What happened in Qatar was that uh, Aprilia told Ducati that if they raced with their little swing-arm spoiler Um, then they would uh, 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 protest the the results of the race. Um, Ducati went ahead anyway. Um, uh, Dovey won. After the race, uh, Aprilia, together with KTM, Honda and Suzuki, all um, uh, protested the results to the FIM stewards. The FIM stewards rejected their appeal, um, or rejected their protest rather, Um, and uh, so uh, the four factories appeal it to the appeal stewards and the appeal stewards basically said this is too complicated it needs uh, proper expert data to judge this and they sent it off to the FIM MotoGP Court of Appeal in Switzerland. There um, um, three judges and some experts or three judges heard expert uh, opinion on uh, whether this spoiler is legal or not, and came to the conclusion that it is actually legal. Uh, Ducati can continue to use it, and they um, and the results of the Qatar race stand, and uh, uh, that means Steve English gets to keep his cash. Um, um, the process itself i mean uh, you know d- teams and factories are like i said they've got 30 minutes uh, after the results of each um uh, the results of each race to uh, a protest a result they have to put down a, a cash deposit to, as a sort of a financial backing to you know prove that they're serious and to, and to have some skin in the game
0: so they have to put pre- their money where their mouth is just like me dave
1: Exactly. <laughs> yes. 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 Exactly. And exactly. Ex- ex- exactly. And just like you, they lose their money if they don't get the result that they uh, uh, that they want. Really. Um, uh, but yeah. That, I mean, that that's basically the process. I mean, my thoughts. I agree. This is. I mean. Uh, Aprilia made it clear um, that last weekend there was the Aprilia All Stars event, where um, a bit like the Ducati uh, World Ducati Day really, which is where um, Aprilia brought together lots of its uh, old bikes and its stars and and riders and they rode around Mugello and there uh, Massimo Rivolo, who's the, or Rivola, who's the Rivola, who's the CEO of uh, Aprilia Racing said their objective was never to take the result away from Ducati or from Dovicioso, but they, they because they had previously presented uh, an aerodynamic spoiler to Danny Aldrich, the technical director, and Danny Aldrich said th- th- that that wasn't legal and then ruled that uh, Ducati's was legal, um, they basically wanted clarity and that was why they protested.
0: Yeah, because that's one of the most interesting things, David, always whenever you look at the process that goes into making rules and deciding on whether or not something is legal or, Ill- or illegal. Danny Aldridge, of course, the MotoGP technical director, he'll be approached by all the teams at all times, basically anytime that they've developed something new, just to ask him, Danny, what's the opinion on this? And as ever, Danny can give his opinion and then we can get to a process where things are then deemed by race stewards whether they're illegal or illegal but typically what happens whenever a team approaches a technical director like Danny in in any racing series they basically ask the question of is this illegal so that they're allowed to then run it and they have to justify why they're developing a certain piece Ducati justified to Danny Aldridge, that they weren't running an aerodynamic piece, they were running something to help cool the tires. Whereas Aprilia, as you said, Aprilia also tried to develop something for this, and Aprilia went to Danny Aldridge with a device that was there to try and give them an aerodynamic advantage, create some downforce, and that was deemed illegal. Even if they're the exact same part, just by how you try and justify it, that's where the MotoGP technical director will come up with his decision on whether or not something can be wrong.
1: Yeah, I mean the, the the trouble is the actual rule book is very very vague on the uh uh on the rules uh, apart from basically the fairing and the mudguard, they don't care. It doesn't really matter what you attach to uh, to the bike. So obviously that's a a massive loophole which everyone then tries to uh, uh, tries to exploit. And um, Ducati saw this. Uh, they also uh, uh, I think they also uh, because as I uh, as I understand it, Aprilia first uh, submitted their design to Danny Aldridge. Um, because Danny Aldridge, because the rules are so rubbish, uh, so vague, um, uh, Danny Aldridge draws up a set of uh, technical guidelines, which unfortunately we don't get to see um, because they're meant for the factories. Um, and uh, in the technical guidelines, he explained what would be allowed and what wouldn't be allowed uh, in, in, in terms of um, uh, attachments to the swing arm. And um, uh, Ducati read it much more cleverly than Aprilia, basically, and that's, uh, the, that's how we ended up, with, uh, ended up with it. But it's uh, it, uh, Danny Aldridge's decision whether something is legal or, le- or illegal, and then it's up to the FIM stewards to enforce that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And uh, basically the rule book gets more appendages added to it than a Ducati swing arm, really. And as things (laughs) progress, you tend to see more and more changes that can be made to the rules and regulations. And as you said, David, the key thing is Danny will make a decision based on his interpretation of what... Ducati or Aprilia or any manufacturer has decided to develop and then it's up to the race stewards to decide whether or not something can be legal or illegal but David just whenever we look at just the makeup of a MotoGP bike and any racing bike really it is a case of everything just being attached to the frame and working from that point out so really just attaching an aerodynamic appendage to a swing arm it's just an extension really of what teams have always been doing just in terms of trying to develop their bikes
1: oh yeah exactly and and really it's yamaha's fault which is one of the reasons they weren't uh, involved in the uh, appeal because it was uh, yamaha's um, uh, smart idea to attach the spoiler underneath the um, uh, uh, underneath the swing arm to divert water away uh, in the wet race they used it to valencia and i can't remember i seem to recall they used it at austria last year as well i think um uh, but basically th- this obviously inspired Ducati and they saw a chance to use uh, to use it for another purpose for cooling the uh, the tire and of course the evidence they will have pre- presented to the courts to, pr- to persuade them that it was for cooling the tire was you know basically the tire temperature profile of the um uh, uh, of the tire they can they can show that the tire the tire runs very slightly cooler when you when the device is fitted and if it has a secondary ed, uh, effect of um, uh, of producing downforce well that's just an unfortunate by you know unfortunate side effect really There's, it's not what they meant to do honest
0: Yeah, and obviously for Ducati, they were well within the spirit of their regulations. They were developing something just to make sure that it helped cool the tire rather than give that aerodynamic advantage. So really for Ducati, the spirit of the regulations, they were very much within that and trying to follow that. But Dave, you've always said that uh, the spirit of the regulations is basically just whatever short drink you have sitting beside whenever you're writing up the rule book.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's no such thing as the spirit of the rules. Not of this people. I mean, you know, KTM is spending fifty million a year. Uh, Honda are probably spending sort of you know $50, 60 million a year. Ducati is spending $30, 40 million a year. This is this too much money is involved in racing for uh, uh, racing at this level, the very highest level of pro- a, a professional motorcycle racing, for people to uh, you know observe the ver- the the spirit of the rules and there's too too much at stake and it's too difficult as well you know we have six factories now and um, certainly four of which could win a race and that makes it these tiny little differences uh, make all the difference
0: and uh, we'll get to a different point in just a couple of moments just but uh, Dave you mentioned there about the four manufacturers that can win a race and obviously right now in MotoGP one of the key things is just to manage the life of your tyre we see it the whole time when was out in front he's always trying to slow that pace down win the race at the slowest possible speed and that really is one of the reasons why anything you can do to try and cool the tyre can make a difference anything you can do just to try and increase that life at the end of a race or increase the grip at the rear really can make all the difference and the, the Ducati device clearly developed around just the kind of regulations that we have now and the kind of racing that we have in MotoGP at the moment
1: Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's no coincidence that they used it first with uh, Petrucci and with uh, Jack Miller, both riders who are known for having problems cooling the tyre, you know, with tyre temperature. So, yeah, I mean that's why uh, Petrucci and Miller used it d- d- during the uh, during practice and why Dovichioso he finally used it in the race because Dovichioso is lighter. He only really gets a benefit from this thing at the end of the race rather than, you know, during qualifying. During qualifying, you don't want the, the, the uh, to, to cool the tie. You want it to be much, much, uh, uh, much, much warmer. You know, you want it to get it up to temperature so you can push really hard really, uh, uh, really early. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, 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 yeah.
0: So that's why Ducati would have developed the part, David. But when you were talking there about the fact that we've got four manufacturers that can all win in MotoGP at the moment, we've got six manufacturers on the grid. There's pretty much no satellite bikes on the grid anymore. All the teams basically trying to, whether you're Honda with Cal Crutchlow having the exact same spec as what uh, the Repsol Honda team were able to run or Yamaha supporting other teams, Ducati doing the same over the last few years. We basically got to the stage now where there are very few satellite bikes on the grid. There's too much money in MotoGP now. You were talking through some of the figures there of likely what teams and manufacturers are spending. And there's far too much money in the sport now, really, to be leaving any stone unturned. But one of the key things that we have in MotoGP, and we've seen it mentioned a lot, is how the manufacturers come together to try and help form the technical regulations, the MMSA. And uh, we've seen a lot of people say that, uh, you know, this is a model that has worked in the past. But it worked in the past whenever you had a lot of customer bikes, you didn't have six manufacturers on the grid, you didn't have this amount of money being spent. Have we got to the stage where really the MMSA, just there might be just too much conflict there between the teams with their own ambitions, their own priorities?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the uh, uh, in the past there were uh, only 3 members of the uh, the MSMA and that was uh, uh, Honda, Yamaha and Ducati because they were the, the only 3 uh, factories sort of basically on the grid. Uh, and even when Suzuki was on the grid, you know, it was three Japanese factories all of whom uh, basically deferred to Honda as the senior uh, partner. Um that doesn't work anymore uh we've got three japanese manufacturers and three uh, and three european manufacturers and the european manufacturers are much more uh, combative i mean the the process for making technical rules is that basically the msma comes together um, uh, they agree uh, a rule change unanimously and if it's put forward uh, as a unanimous proposal um, then the grand prix commission which is the Includes the FIM and Dorna and Urta, the teams. Um, uh, they then agree it. Um, uh, but that's that, that's with six, you could do that when there's three uh, three factories on the grid, but not when there's six. And as you say, uh, in terms of sort of satellite bikes, there's now uh, you know the the two Avintia bikes. There's Pecco Bagnaia. There's uh, Fabio Quartararo. Uh, and there's um, uh, Takanakagami, and that's your lot in terms of satellite bikes. The rest are all uh, v- factory bikes or very, very close uh, uh, factory bikes because, you know, in the Tech 3 KTM uh, team, they're incredibly close to the, uh, uh, to, to the factory. So, yes, everyone has, has too much at, at stake for them to even agree amongst themselves what the rules uh, should be.
0: Yeah, for me, it's definitely got to the stage now where there's too much money involved and too much competition involved for the manufacturers to see the so-called greater good for MotoGP. And uh, there was always a certain level of inevitability to something like this happening. But uh, one of the key things that we've seen, David, as well, as you mentioned them earlier on Massimo Rivola, the CEO of Aprilia Racing, and uh, he's coming in from a Formula One background. And that's been thrown around an awful lot by journalists and fans just about, oh, the sport's gone to hell in a handbasket because a Formula One man's come in and suddenly we've got an appeal like this.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's nonsense to be frank. The the the, the sport was always going to end up this way uh, because Gigi Delinia has been complaining for years that he really wants to develop aerodynamics and um, nobody else wants to. Um, the other factories don't want to so there's there's been this split inside the msma and as i said um you know six factories try and get six factories to agree on anything is really really difficult um uh so i think the, 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 the if you like the structure i mean one of the historic strengths was the way that was the decision making process the fact that uh, the factories the teams uh, uh dawner all had to agree basically the same set of rules um and uh, that sort of bound everywhere, bound everyone together. But now the factories are pretty much at war with each other. Um, I think Massimo Rivola, Rivola was just the first person to actually. Um, well, I, 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 he was. He was the straw that broke the camel's back. Really, you know, he, he was just the first person to actually uh, precipitate the, the 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 crisis, rather than um you know the, the crisis was sitting there waiting to happen and he was just the first person to actually sort of speak up about it so but i think this this has always been inevitable and as you were saying steve i mean it's done very differently uh in f1 um how how does it work in f1 i mean i don't know very much about it you do you love your racing and you uh and you like your f1
0: yeah well, one of the key things that for me, that's quite interesting is that this whole thing has really just come to light where basically an F1, you get some appeals, but it doesn't tend to be a case where the result isn't decided for weeks on end. That happens very rarely. If you think back to you know there's a few examples of it. Things like in Sepang in ninety nine, the first ever Malaysian Grand Prix, there was actually something quite similar to this kind of thing happened, where Ferrari had their, their turn in veins So on just in front of the side pods, just to try and push the push the the aero effect alongside to the cooling and things like that. But they had a a similar device that uh, was deemed illegal by the race stewards at the time. And uh, then the Court of Arbitration for Sport or the the F1 body that uh, dealt with the appeal, they then had a big meeting to decide that, no, this was actually, there was a, a technical error with the measurement. And you ended up basically a couple of weeks later, the result was decided and they went down to the final race for a title decider. But uh, it doesn't actually happen all that often where race results are held up in the air for you know a prolonged period of time. But the one thing that is to, is seen in F1 a lot is that the technical bodies work a lot more hand-in-hand with the FIA now than they used to. But some of that also comes from the fact that the manufacturers don't have as great of a say in whether or not they want to work together or anything like that. They've got their... They've got their council meetings where they decide on the future regulations and try and come up with a plan for how they'll develop cars in the future. But it's up to the teams then to work with the FIA and work with the technical directors and uh, to try and determine whether or not something, again, will be legal or illegal. The question always framed as, is this illegal? And uh, once that's been cleared, basically, it'll go to a race. And if it's failed by the race stewards, typically what happens is They'll just decide that for the rest of for the future, that uh, this part will be deemed illegal going forward or legal going forward. If you think back to 10 years ago, there was another incident where there was the double deck diffusers. And again, these were deemed to be legal and the teams just had to make their decisions and make their development along that path in the future. Because a couple of teams at the start of the season had found the loophole, just like Ducati has done.
1: Yeah exactly I think the the uh, I suppose if you're going to define a a, a prototype class it's um uh, that uh, everything allowed everything is allowed unless it's strictly forbidden whereas in production racing it's the other way around everything is strictly forbidden unless it's explicitly allowed um uh, but could this difference between F1 and MotoGP also be the fact that um uh, in MotoGP gp in motorcycle racing the most important thing is the engine and handling that is you know a really really important part of the um, uh, uh, important part of sort of the title package whereas it seems to me in um, f1 especially with the much stricter engine regs and all the rest um, much more of it is about um, aerodynamics plays a much much bigger role
0: yeah well the one thing is that in f1 aero is king and that's always been the case ever since the genie came out of that bottle. And that's why even whenever Michael Schumacher was winning races, there was always the, you know, you can you can win with Schumi or you can win with Newey. And it was, if you had a Newey, you didn't need a Schumi. So we were able to basically have a technical director like Adrian Newey that was a genius and could figure out different ways around the regulations. And that's what teams were doing back then. MotoGP is moving closer and closer towards that. The biggest factor in that is that Gigi Delinia has just forced the game to be much higher. If you think back to... I always think, David, that uh, in Valencia in 2014, you know that one of the most eagerly anticipated things for the whole season is when the teams and the manufacturers sit down to have their technical debrief at the end of the year. Gigi Delinia, in his first end-of-year debrief as Ducati's technical director, he sat down and he said, you know what? Aero, that's the key. That's what we're focusing on. That's what we're trying to develop. And that was five years ago. He was ahead of the curve with that, and he's just forced the other teams to raise their game and try and do try and catch up to Ducati. But he's been putting the investment in aerodynamics because you can see that engines, electronics, suspension, all those all those points have reached a finite point of development where you can't really redevelop any of them. You're you're trying to find magic in in a box that's getting smaller and smaller. Whereas with aero, Gigi looked at it and said five years ago, this is the one area where we can make a massive step forward and Ducati put the focus on that. And that's why consistently you see Ducati coming up with novel ways around the different aero technical regs that we have.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's certainly interesting that um, Ducati have... Sort of uh, focused on this, like you say, in all the other areas, you're looking for thousandths of a second and um and with error, you can maybe get a few hundredths of a second and that can be that makes that mounts up to a big uh, big difference after 20 odd um, uh, 20 odd laps um i mean the interesting thing is i mean one of the reasons why ducati are opposed to any changes is also because they've got so much invested in it as you said you know they've been doing it for so long uh, they've got uh, aerodynamic specialists actually working for them and you don't spend that much money and then sort of th- throw it all away to start all over again
0: yeah, and if you think back only, I think it was about 2012, 2013, Ducati were going out and hiring F1 technical directors. John Barnard was involved in different projects with them. I think um, Alan Jenkins was involved as well, former technical directors in in like Jaguar Racing, McLaren, different teams like that in Formula 1. They were involved with projects with Ducati just to try and bring their aerodynamics closer to where it had to be because if you think back to you know five, six, seven years ago, what's the key thing that you think of when you think of aerodynamics on a motorbike? You think in terms of being able to get behind the bubble, being able to make sure that you're slippery down a straight. Ducati over the last few years, they've looked at it and said, you know what, riders can get behind that bubble. We're able to make sure that we're able to have good top speed, but how about we're able to find a way to keep the keep the front wheel down without actually having to go to a huge amount of effort for the rider? Because what we found even in World Superbikes this year, with Ducati having the wings on their bike, when you talk to Eugene Laverty or Alvaro Bautista riders that have ridden with the wings in MotoGP or have ridden MotoGP bikes, they've all said that in the opening sector of the lap in Phillip Island, that they could feel the difference through the fast corners, through that opening half of the lap, just that the front end was much more stable when you were trying to turn it in. It gave them a big advantage on a production-based bike. So you can imagine what it's like on a MotoGP bike. They're just that far ahead of the curve that everyone else is just playing catch-up. But now that everyone knows what's going to happen for the future, they know that they have to make that investment as well.
1: Yeah. It, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I mean, uh, and like you say, um, uh, the, the, basically ducati have sort top speed not sort of uh, or they they've, they've sort top speed not by chasing pure peak speed but by chasing uh, a faster way to get out of the corner and uh, uh, you know faster corner exit speed uh, means you get a, a, a much better top speed at the end of uh, uh, at the end of the uh, um, uh, at the end of the straight really so um, i mean w- one question for me is um, if aerodynamics are banned if you know the grand prix commission uh, and the other sma msma members decide to clamp down on uh, uh decide to clamp down on aerodynamics uh, could ducati leave i mean this was always the uh, the threat which honda made about electronics you know if you clamp down on electronics then there's no interest for us in actually competing in motor gp and we'll leave um we have a spec ECU, we have spec electronics, Honda is still there. So uh, I think you have to take that with a pinch of salt. I think also any threat by Ducati would be the same thing. You know, we, the, there is nothing quite as good in marketing terms um, as winning a MotoGP race.
0: Yeah, and the one thing that you should always remember is who holds the deck? You know, like Ducati holds a good hand, but the deck is being held by MotoGP GP because that's where everyone wants to be that's where everyone wants to win that's where you can as you said say david that's where you can make the biggest impact on the bottom line by winning races and while teams and manufacturers will always threaten different things you have to take them with a pinch of salt as you said and sometimes manufacturers have to have their bluff called honda had their bluff called with the electronic regulations and they're still there
1: yeah, yes, exactly, which is why I think, you know, uh I think eventually um I mean the the, the problem is really just in the rule book, the rule book um and uh, Frankly, the rule makers—the people who are actually managing the uh, the the, the rules—they just don't have the experience in aerodynamics. They're not; they, they don't think in terms of aerodynamics, and so they're getting caught sort of uh, on the hop with this, really. And they really need some expert uh, expert help from aerodynamicists if they really want to rein this in. I think it will be reined in at some point, but um quite how they do that, I do not know.
0: Yeah, no, I tell you one thing that I always find interesting, and like we always read everything Matt Matt Oxley writes because it's always worth reading but what's really good for me is that now that he's writing more and more for Motorsport Magazine he's actually able to delve more and more into the F1 contacts within that magazine so there's a lot of times whenever aero points get brought up that Oxo is really the most important one to read because he just goes and he talks to an F1 technical director or an aerodynamicist and you're able to get a real insightful comment from them just about the direction that's going to end up happening and if you think back to a couple of years ago Matt did a couple of pieces just about the aero future of MotoGP and it's pretty much exactly what's come to pass just from what those F1 engineers have said so anyone looking to get themselves fully up to speed obviously you should always read David Emmett or Neil Morrison but uh, definitely worth giving Oxo a read as well just to be able to see what he has to say and what he's been told about the aero future
1: yeah absolutely i mean uh yeah as you say uh neil and matt are my two uh my two go-to uh reads when it comes to uh, MotoGP. um just like you're my my go-to read when it comes to world Superbikes, uh, steve if i without you i wouldn't know what was going on yeah well uh,
0: you're, you're my go-to editor dave for more or <laughs> news
1: yeah absolutely uh, no comment on that one i can assure you <coughs> Um, just one more point about this because even though the FIM Court of Appeal has ruled on this the whole thing isn't over yet Um, Aprilia have five days well Aprilia the the four manufacturers but it's still basically being led by uh, Aprilia Um, they have five days to appeal this to the Court of Arbitration for Sport um, in Switzerland which is the body outside of uh, the FIM and which all sporting bodies are actually affiliated with um, so we have to wait and see if they decide to do that. I um, uh, asked Aprilia last night and they said, well, we've got to see the details first, because all we saw about on the ruling was it's legal. We didn't see why it was ruled legal. Uh, any of the reasoning behind the the decision so um we have to wait and see well so wait a minute that was it came out on Tuesday so I think we've got until about Saturday to find out whether this is really over or whether someone is going to take it all the way to the to the cast
0: yeah and that's the, the one good thing about the CAS, the court of arbitration for sport you mentioned there David just that we haven't actually had the decision explained to us one thing about the court of arbitration for sport is once they make a decision they actually do release what they call the reasoned decision so it gives you all of the information that's come to light during the course of a protest and the the process that goes behind it so if this does go to the court of arbitration for sport we will get a full rundown of exactly the reasoning behind the parts what teams were using as their as their basis for their argument. So that can also be quite an interesting thing. But with a bit of luck, this draws a close to it, and uh, the four teams, four manufacturers, will just look to figure out what to do for their own futures. And uh, we'll wait and see what happens when the MMSA are meeting again to see whether or not, as you said earlier, David, if they decide to try and close up some of these loopholes and try and make sure that some of the aero arms race is sort of kept in check.
1: Uh, yeah exactly i mean the next movie is basically on the uh, um uh within the manufacturers themselves and uh within the grand prix uh, commission i think there will be a lot of um i think it's going to be a lot of meetings in argentina this weekend and and in austin after that and in Jerez after that i think we're basically going to be talking about um uh, aerodynamics for the rest of the season and it wouldn't surprise me if there was a sort of temporary truce called where everything gets more or less frozen for for, for this season while they all make their minds up or on on the more fundamental question because it's, in the end it really is a fundamental philosophical question how much aero uh, are we going to allow and um, how much development uh, do we think is, uh, is useful
0: yeah how much aero is too much aero I always find that's a question I have to ask myself around Easter time just never meeting Easter eggs But uh, just we look ahead to Argentina as well, David, obviously for this weekend in Argentina, you're back home in the Netherlands, but we'll have Neil Morrison on the ground at least being able to get us a lot of information from round two of the 2019 season.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think Neil's uh, uh, got quite a busy weekend ahead of him with um, uh, everything that's going on. Um, Argentina, I absolutely love the Terramas circuit. I think it's one of the best layouts on the calendar. It's really fast, it's really flowing and it's really challenging. Um, And it's produced some... It's produced some exciting races. Um, I think the biggest disadvantage of Termas is that it doesn't get used very much. And so the track is usually pretty filthy when everyone arrives there. And because it's it's taking place um, now, which I think is we're sort of heading heading towards the southern, uh, uh, towards winter in the southern hemisphere, Um, the, the weather can be a bit shonky, as we saw last year and last year was quite the race
0: yeah a bit of an epic last year and uh, if you need an excuse to go back and watch last year's grand prix just sit down and watch that because it really was one of the best races we've seen in a long time you mentioned that neil's going to be busy down on the ground in argentina and uh, for all of our patreon supporters if you go to patreon.com forward slash paddockpasspodcast Once again, for the Argentine round, we're going to have a daily roundup that we'll try and get uh, as soon as possible to each of our listeners. But basically, for $3 a month, you're able to become a Patreon supporter of the Paddock Pass podcast, and we've got a new selection of different features for Patreon subscribers this year. So if you support the podcast, you'll be able to listen to the Paddock Pass podcast, Paddock Notes, and that's basically where we'll give a quick recap of the day, and then we'll get some audio clips from the debriefs of different riders to try and give you a little bit more insight a little bit more information ahead of each day of the Grand Prix so David we're going to be busy with the Paddock Pass podcast Paddock Notes just to make sure that we've got enough peas in there but uh, we're going to be busy with that through the course of this weekend just to make sure that everyone's able to keep themselves as up to date as possible.
1: Uh, yes exactly and i mean i'm quite looking forward to it it'll be a little bit easier here also because of the uh, um we'll actually it, it we'll actually have time to actually sit down and, and do it and that was certainly with the weird time schedule of uh, of qatar that's always uh, very dif- uh, very difficult um uh, termas um argentina we're back on a normal time schedule which is better for the for for the riders and better for 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 everyone you don't have the big Sort of temperature differences and the differences in light and all the rest of it, um, but it's still a very, uh, it's still a very odd race. It's a very odd round. Um, the as I say, because the track is so dirty um, uh, and unused. Um, it makes it very difficult for uh, people to sort of you know figure out tire use it takes a, a couple of days for the or it, it certainly takes sort of you know the, the first day before the track is rubbed in um, uh, the weather always plays a role um, people don't have very many updates there I mean I know everyone is expecting all of the other factories to suddenly start sticking things to the bottom of their swing arms but I think that's uh, extremely unlikely I don't think anyone will have any uh, will have anything ready to go apart from uh, apart from Ducati Um uh, so yeah and it's a it's a track what we did see last year was if it is sketchy conditions just how good mark marquez was because despite the fact that he quite rightly got uh, um, uh, got given a huge penalty for riding like a maniac um he was over a second a lap quicker than everyone else sort of um, after his ride through which was um uh, uh, astonishing and if it's sketchy conditions again on sunday and he manages not to stall the bike on the grid and get himself a ride through, um, then it's hard to see anyone keeping up with him.
0: Yeah, Marquez did his best cold trickle impression last year in Argentina, where he hit pretty much everything except for the pace car out there. But uh, for Marquez this weekend, David, one of the key things that we saw in Qatar, one of the key things that we talked about at the top of the show, was just being able to manage that tyre if it's a dry race. The weather forecast for this weekend looks a little bit hit and miss. But if it's a dry race, managing that tyre really is the key consideration for everyone. Argentina, one of the fastest tracks in the world, puts a lot of stress on that rear tyre. So is this going to be another race where, once again, we just see the riders trying to win it at the slowest possible speed and then just in the last three or four laps try and pull the pin and try and open a gap
1: yeah I mean we've seen races there previously where you've had sort of basically like three or four riders all um, uh, together at the front uh, uh, waiting for the right moment moments to uh, try to make a break and I think that's exactly what we're going to see uh, this weekend as well I'm fascinated to see what happens with for example um, uh, the Suzuki because I think this this is going to be a track which is going to really suit the suit the Suzuki um, Alex Rins had a fantastic race last uh, last time out it's been getting stronger and stronger and the suzuki is a fantastic piece of uh, uh piece of equipment this uh, this year um going to be interesting to see what the yamahas can do as well because the yamahas uh, argentina has traditionally been a track where the yamahas have been really really strong um unfortunately that hasn't always translated to europe once they got back again um but uh, uh you know valentino rossi finished fifth Despite being what was it six and six uh, six tenths of a second behind uh, uh, behind the winner at, at Qatar, so they're not that far off, and they can manage the tire. And it also it helps Yamaha if uh, the race is slower because they don't have to manage the tire uh, the the tire quite so much. So. It, i mean it's an intriguing race it really is it's it's always such an odd track it, well it, it's such a it's such an exciting track that um uh and the, it offers you a lot of different ways to try and win
0: yeah and i think the point you made there about rossi and Qatar really is the key thing because we look at uh, teams riders manufacturers oh god they're nowhere and then you think actually it's just that there's so little margin for error in MotoGP gp right now but the way that Races are progressing. The way the teams are having to approach races, riders are having to approach races, does lend itself to having pretty close fields. Definitely expect that we'll see more of the same this weekend in Argentina. And Dave, we've had a couple of weeks off, and uh, it's definitely going to be an exciting weekend just to see where everyone plays out in round two. But uh, where's your money going for this week?
1: Um, honestly, it's difficult. I think uh, I think it would be foolish to bet against Mark Marquez. Um, uh, quite honestly i think also what's going to be interesting to see is where uh, Andrea Dovicioso can finish if Dovichioso can finish on the podium um then that puts him uh, that, that's a really good start for him it's a really good place for him to um uh, to uh, you know, take the championship back to, or to keep his position in the championship and take it back to, mm. uh, uh, take it back to Europe. That's going to be key because that was one of the problems that they had last year. The Ducatis didn't do so well. That um, um, in Argentina struggled in, um, uh, uh, struggled a little bit in Austin as well, and came back with uh, with a bit of a deficit. So it's going to be key uh, how that plays out. Like I say, I think my money's on uh, Marquez to win, but I think it could be. You know, who else is on the podium with him? Um, you know, five or six names. There's, we could easily see that. I mean, he, we saw how fast Fabio quattoraro was in in Qatar. It'd be fascinating to see how he can go in uh, in Argentina. Um, there's all these other factories. Um, there's all these all these other riders who could uh, who could mix it up. Like I say, Suzuki, Cal Crutchlow. What's Jorge Lorenzo going to do? Has he been is he adapted better? Uh, what the Yamaha's going to do? There could be five or six uh, uh, different people at the front, and then the question is who gets away at the end.
0: Jesus, Dave, you're doing a good job of making sure that I sit down and watch free practice one from Friday afternoon. But uh,
1: d- This is also why I don't bet, Steve, because I think, <laughs> who's going to win? Well, it could be them, or them, or them, or them, or them, or them. Yeah, no, let's not just, uh, let's not, just not, eh?
0: Yeah, I think what's going to be interesting for me, you mentioned Fabio Quattro, they're really strong in Qatar. He doesn't have a test In Argentina before this round. That's where I'm really excited to see how the rookies do. uh, Basically what is a clean sheet of paper for them. They need to go to Argentina. Learn the track on a MotoGP bike. Try and understand exactly what they need to do. To change their base settings. This is going to be a really interesting one. Because here... And then when we move on to Coda in a couple of weeks' time, it really is when the season starts to gain a bit of momentum. We go to Europe then, and then we really start to see where the in order is. But I think this weekend, definitely tough to bet against Mark Marquez, but... Uh, I think, that, uh, I think we could see a few surprises through this week. It's definitely not going to be one of those races where you'd expect to see anyone run away with it. I think we're going to have, just like we've seen time and time again over the last few years, a really close MotoGP race again. And I'm looking forward to the Moto2 and Moto3 classes as well. It's going to be interesting to see how Kaito Toba does in Moto3 to see whether or not he can back up what he did in Qatar and to see how he sort of goes along with the pressure of now being a Grand Prix race winner
1: yeah exactly it's it's actually quite heartening to see um there seems to be a really strong contingent of japanese riders again in um uh, in moto three um th- you know this is one of the benefits of the uh, uh, of the asia talent cup there's more and more riders uh, from the asia talent cup actually started to come uh, come through the order um there was a couple of uh, uh, of um i think it's M- uh, masaki was also was Surprisingly strong during practice, couldn't quite put it together in the race, but uh, had a, he had a pretty good. Uh, he certainly showed uh, lots of talent. So, uh, yeah, that's that's going to be interesting. Also, going to be interesting to see how uh, I think also. Um, the the layout of the track in Termas is going to be one of those where the Moto2 bikes actually get quite close to uh, the MotoGP bikes, uh, d- despite the lack of uh, the top speed and all the teams have had a you know they've had a race to sort to figure out the electronics to figure out the bikes a little bit to get used to everything, so that's going to be that's going to be interesting to see.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be a great weekend across all three classes. So thanks for joining us on the Paddock Pass podcast, David.
1: Uh, thank you very much indeed, uh, uh, Steve.
0: So until next time on the Paddock Pass podcast, from myself, Steve English and David Amos, enjoy the Argentine Grand Prix. Bye. <laughs> Oh, that was good, Dave. That was on time. God, we're absolutely nailing it. Already, I'm feeling confident for this week's podcast.